the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind producing, Dave King Engineering in Portland, and... Quan McCoy, producing and engineering in Seattle. Today, we're looking forward to a conversation with Pastor Steve Jamison. He's lead pastor of Eastridge Church in Issaquah. He's also the host of Eastridge Today, heard on KGNW. We're going to talk about Emmanuel, God with us, as we anticipate commemorating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's coming up later in the second hour of the program. Well, the breaking news story of the day, the Colorado Supreme Court has disqualified former President Trump from appearing on the state's ballot in 2024. The disqualification, which was made under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, is related to the Capitol riot on January 6th, 2021. The ruling today is stayed until January 4th because of likely appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. Three justices on the Colorado Supreme Court dissented. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold said in a statement that she would continue to follow the court's guidance on this important issue. The Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that Donald Trump is barred from the Colorado ballot for inciting the January 6th insurrection, something he has not been charged or found guilty of, and attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. This decision may be appealed, Griswold said. And already Donald Trump has indicated that they would, in fact, appeal the decision. Chances are, well, even more than that, it will be expedited to the U.S. Supreme Court again under the 14th Amendment. As the, the story is developing and we'll certainly cover it in a greater depth tomorrow, but that is the headline and we'll fill in some of those details as they emerge uh, tomorrow. Well, the top Texas police officials spoke with um, Fox and Friends on Tuesday about how the state is taking matters into its own hands to address mass illegal immigration as arrests of migrants have begun at the border. Now, the uh, the number that was uh, that broke the old record was 2000 uh, coming into the country. That is now doubled. Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Monday signed a new law giving police the authority to arrest migrants who cross the border illegally. At the signing ceremony, the governor said the goal of Senate Bill 4 was to stop the tidal wave of illegal entry into Texas. Once in custody, migrants can either agree to a judge's order to leave the U.S. or be prosecuted on misdemeanor charges of illegal entry. Migrants who don't comply could face arrest again under more serious felony charges. Texas DPA's Lieutenant Chris Alvarez said that Abbott is taking the fight to the federal government and standing up for residents and law enforcement with an historic action. He spoke um, after more than 4,000 migrants were taken into custody on Monday alone. This is not your ordinary border situation. I think we moved beyond chaos and now the situation has gotten much worse. This is deliberate inaction by the federal government to secure our border, he went on to say. Well, Alvarez said mass illegal immigration is a form of criminal trespassing and the new legislation holds individuals accountable for crossing illegally. He said the new law gives authorities broader authority to use the criminal trespass charge. Former acting ICE Director Tom Homan 
said on Tuesday that the administration hasn't done a single thing to stop the flow of migrants forcing Texas to act. This isn't mismanagement or incompetence. It is by design. Biden ran on open borders and he's followed through. And you've got to give him credit. He kept his promise. I salute Governor Abbott. We've got to protect this country. How many people off the terrorist watch list have been arrested? An and historic number. Governor Abbott is trying to protect Texas, and in doing so, he's protecting this country, end quote. Well, the 2023 fiscal year has broken new records with more than 2.4 million migrant encounters at the border. September saw a record for encounters at the southern border, while the following month saw a record for encounters in October with more than 240,000 encounters um, border-wide. Funding for more resources at the border has stalled in recent weeks as Republicans demanded be coupled with Restrictions on asylum and the use of parole, a demand which some Democrats have balked at. Um, Bill Melguin uh, said Tuesday the influx has reached a jaw-dropping point with one Texas border agent describing it as the worst day we've ever seen. Meanwhile, a conservative policy group has filed an ethics complaint against Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson for willfully omitting required income disclosures for years while serving on the federal bench. The Center for Renewing America, a think tank led by former uh, senior Trump White House official Russ Voigt, sent a letter to the Judicial Conference with allegations that Jackson willfully failed to disclose required information about her husband's malpractice consulting income for more than a decade. The letter suggests that the Judicial Conference should refer Jackson's possible ethics violations to Attorney General Merrick Garland for investigation and possible civil enforcement. The letter notes that federal judges are legally required to disclose the source of uh, items of earned income earned by a spouse from any person which exceed $1,000, except if the spouse is self-employed in business or a profession. Only the nature of such business or profession needs be reported. Well, as part of her nomination to the U.S. District Court uh, for the District of Columbia, Jackson disclosed the names of two legal medical malpractice consulting clients who paid her husband, Dr. Patrick Jackson, more than $1,000 for the year 2011, the letters noted. In subsequent filings, however, Jackson repeatedly failed to disclose that her husband received income from medical malpractice consulting fees. The letter reads, we know this by Justice Jackson's own admission in her um, amended disclosure form for 2020 filed when she was nominated to the Supreme Court that some of my previously filed reports inadvertently omitted her husband's income from consulting on medical malpractice cases, the letter says. Well, Voigt says in the letter that Jackson has not even attempted to list the years for which her previously filed disclosures omitted her husband's consulting income. Instead, in her admission of omissions on her 2020 amended uh, return disclosures form, Jackson uh, Justice Jackson provided only the vague statement that some of these past disclosures contain material omissions. Well, Voigt, who headed up the Office of Management and Budget under President Trump, argues that Dr. Jackson's income does not qualify for the self-employment exception. The Ethics and Government Act of 1978 requires Justice Jackson to identify the source of items of, in, of earned income earned by a spouse from any person which exceeds $1,000. The former OMB chief uh, argues that since Jackson was aware of the requirements in 2012, enough to list the specific sources of income for her first disclosure filing, but not in subsequent filings, apart from admitting that she has left off some of her husband's income, her actions amount to willful violation of the law.
The letter also says there is reason to believe Justice Jackson may have failed to report the private funding sources of her massive investiture celebration of the Library of Congress in her most recent financial disclosure as well. well. Following her appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2022, the Library of Congress hosted a massive event in her honor that featured performances by several musicians and groups, including the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Quartet and civil rights movement freedom singer Rutha May Harris. It's unclear who paid for the event. EIGA requires that any gift received over $415 be disclosed. Uh, EIGA defines gift as a payment, advance, forbearance, rendering, or deposit of money, or anything of value. Jackson's disclosure for that year includes flowers from Oprah Winfrey with a $1,200 price tag and a designer jacket from her Vogue photo shoot that cost $6,500. Justice Jackson thus cannot claim ignorance of EIGA's gift disclosure requirements, and there is no serious argument that this massive event featuring performances by several musicians and groups celebrating her investiture is not a thing of value, Voigt said. He also says that Jackson's disturbing trend of not reporting material sources of income and gifts has shielded potential conflicts of interest from public scrutiny and undermined the ability of the public outside watchdog groups and parties to scrutinize her recusal decisions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, a conversation with Pastor Steve Jamison from East Ridge Church in Issaquah. He's also the host of East Ridge Today, heard on KGNW. We'll talk about Emmanuel, God with us. That's coming up in the second hour. Well, the unique presence, well, I should actually begin with... um, Another story that seems to be developing about the the Colorado Supreme Court disqualifying President Trump from the 2024 ballot. There is more information coming in. The court uh, disqualified the former president from appearing on the state's ballot in 2024. Uh, it was made under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It related to the Capitol riot on January 6th of 2021. Now, this is the only court of, of several um, state Supreme Courts that have come to this conclusion. It will very likely be expedited to the U.S. Supreme Court to resolve the issue. The ruling was four to three. It um, is uh, stayed until January 4th because of a likely appeal. Three justices on the Colorado Supreme Court dissented. Um, we do not reach these conclusions lightly, the court majority wrote. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decision that the law mandates we reach. Well, Trump campaign spokesperson Steve Chong, he wrote in a statement that an appeal would be filed Tuesday night. That's tonight. Unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group's scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden by removing President uh, Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters to vote for the candidate of their choice. Democrat Party leaders are in a state of paranoia over the growing dominant lead President Trump has amassed in the polls. They have lost faith in the fall, the failed Biden presidency and are now uh, doing everything they can to stop the American voter from throwing them out of office next November, he wrote. And that was a quote. 
He went on, the Colorado Supreme Court issued a completely flawed decision tonight, and we will swiftly file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court and a concurrent request for a stay in this deeply undemocratic decision. We have full confidence that the U.S. Supreme Court will quickly rule in our favor and finally put an end to these un-American lawsuits, he added. Well, in a previous ruling, Colorado District Judge Sarah Wallace allowed Trump to stay on that ballot, but found that Trump engaged in insurrection for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Colorado Secretary of State Griswold said in a statement that she would continue to follow court guidance on the important issue. The Supreme Court has ruled that Donald Trump is barred from the Colorado ballot for inciting on January 6th an insurrection and attempting to overthrow the 2020 presidential election. This decision may be appealed, she went on to say. Now, the 14th Amendment states, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemy thereof. But Congress may be made by vote of two thirds of each house remove such disability. Disqualification lawsuits relating to Trump's appearance on the ballot are pending in 13 states, including Texas, Nevada and Wisconsin. President Biden won Colorado by 13.5 points. Uh, in 2020. Again, a developing story. The appeal, if not already, will be filed this evening, we're told. Well, the unique appearance of Representative Eric Swalwell, the Democrat from California, at Hunter Biden's news conference on the Senate side of the Capitol last week, raised questions about whether he played a role in the first son defying the House subpoena, according to a top legal expert. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley said that Hunter Biden knowingly thumbed his nose at Congress in a display he called a slam dunk case of contempt. However, more interestingly was the aspect that the space on the Senate side where Biden's press conference took place, presumably to avoid any potential intervention by House Sergeant at Arms William McFarland for defying a lawful subpoena, was was reserved by Swalwell's office. House Oversight Committee member Eric Burleson, a Republican from Missouri, also said last week that McFarland should indeed pursue Biden, adding that the first son is clearly in the uh, city of Washington. On the American Reports anchor, uh, John uh, Roberts said Swalwell was clearly acting as a Sherpa of sorts for Hunter Biden's visit to the Hill. Well, Turley said there may not have been a crime committed by Swalwell, even if Biden is probed for contempt, but that other repercussions could come at the discretion of the House. It certainly raises serious questions under the House rules. I've never seen anything quite like it before. There's plenty of members. There are plenty of members that associated with unpopular causes. What's different here is that Swalwell reserved congressional space through his office, presumably using his staff to defy the subpoena, a valid subpoena of the House. Well, Turley went on in his observations of this unusual situation, noted Swalwell himself as a former Democrat manager of ex-president Donald Trump's impeachment proceedings, appearing with someone who is the subject of uh, subject to congressional proceedings. He cited how Republicans already essentially barred Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee following allegations surrounding his interactions with the suspected Chinese spy named Fang Fang. They have a lot of, opi- of, of options from 
censure to looking at whether he should be allowed to continue on committees, he added. But the key here is really that we need to know to what extent did he not only facilitate, but encourage what could be a federal crime. And in my view, it was federal a criminal a contempt what Hunter Biden did on that day. Again, that story is developing and the consequence for Mr. Swalwell will be made known at some point in the not too distant future. Another news, a federal judge in New York has ordered the unsealing of dozens of documents naming people linked to the disgraced financier and sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. The documents are expected to identify more than 180 people, including associates, victims, investigators and journalists who covered the case. Some of the names will remain under seal, including those belonging to minor victims who never spoke publicly about the case and a person who the judge said was wrongly identified as an alleged perpetrator by a reporter. At least one person asked the court not to release her name, arguing that it could put her at risk of physical harm. U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska, she outlined the reasoning in a 51-page order on Monday. The order comes as part of a 2015 lawsuit between Epstein accuser Virginia uh, Guffrey and her former friend and accomplice uh, Giselle Jezelaine Maxwell. The case was settled in 2017, but the judge indicated in hearing hearings in 2021 and 22 that the names would not remain sealed indefinitely. Uh, she alleged that Epstein and Maxwell trafficked her when she was 17 years old. She is now in her 30s. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds of uh, Iowa charges that former President Trump is misleading voters in her state. It's misleading and it's not fair to Iowans, the governor said on Monday night. Imagine that, a politician misleading potential voters. She was speaking in an interview while referring to an ad the Trump campaign is running in the Hawkeye state that spotlights years old clips of Reynolds praising the former president. Reynolds endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the race for the White House uh, last month. And the uh, two teamed up again in Bettendorf, Iowa, with four weeks to go until the state's caucuses kick off the GOP presidential nominating calendar. And while Reynolds supported Trump during the 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns, the relationship soured this past summer when the former president blasted Reynolds for staying neutral in the Republican nomination race, following a longstanding tradition of Iowa governors. Senator Ben Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, has broken his silence after one of his staffers was allegedly fired over a sex tape filmed in a Senate hearing room. I was angry. I was disappointed. Cardin told um, media outlets on Monday when speaking about the scandal, it's a breach of trust. Cardin wouldn't name the staffer in question, only saying it was a personal issue. The Democratic senator said he was not aware of any further disciplinary issues against the staffer and hadn't spoken to him since the firing. He added that the Capitol Police are investigating the incident. The scandal erupted on Friday when the Daily Caller published the video with the blurred-out faces of the two men in the Hart Senate office building, room 216, the location where several high-profile hearings have taken place in recent years, including Supreme Court confirmation hearings. A federal judge on Monday issued a temporary restraining order to halt the taking down of a federal I should say a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery. A cemetery spokesperson said that the U.S. Army had begun uh, disassembling the monument, but halted operations. The restraining order will expire Wednesday night. A hearing is scheduled for 10 a.m. Eastern time to decide whether or not the judge's order will remain in place. The order issued by Judge Rossi Alston, a Trump appointee, blocks any acts to deconstruct, tear down, remove or alter the object of this case. In a footnote, Alston wrote that 
He takes very seriously the representations of officers of the court, and should the representations in this case be untrue or exaggerated, the court may take appropriate actions and sanctions. The restraining order has requested by was requested by a group called Defend Arlington. The group, which is affiliated with the organization Save Southern Heritage Florida, sued the Department of Defense on Sunday over its decision to remove the memorial. The removal will desecrate, damage, and likely destroy the memorial longstanding at ANC as a grave marker and impede the memorial's eligibility for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up on our second hour, a conversation with Pastor Steve Jamison of Eastridge Church in Issaquah. He's also the host of Eastridge Today. We're going to talk about Emmanuel, God with us, as we anticipate commemorating and celebrating the birth of Jesus. Well, returning to some of the headline news, a group of uh, dozens of House and Senate Republicans filed a legal brief on Monday to urge the Supreme Court to take up two cases related to the president's authority to lock up public lands for uh, resource development and other uses. In the brief first obtained uh, by Fox News Digital, the lawmakers led by Representative Cliff Bentz of Oregon and joined by House Natural Resource Committee Chair Bruce Westerman of uh, Arkansas, Energy and Commerce Committee Chair Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington and 26 other lawmakers, including three senators, argue that the president's use of the 1906 Antiquities Act is an example of federal overreach and violates the U.S. Constitution. Now, the lawmakers specifically asked the high court to hear both American Forest Resource Council versus United States of America and Murphy Company versus Biden, two cases challenging the expansion of the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument in southwest Oregon. Now, plaintiffs have argued that the monument expansion was both illegal and caused significant economic damage, particularly to the timber industry. The Antiquities Act, designed to um, designed as a federal conservation tool, grants the president's broad authority to establish national monuments on existing federal lands. Well, since taking office in 2021, the president has established five such monuments in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, Mississippi, and Arizona, which have faced opposition from industry, lawmakers, and garnered legal challenges. While invoking the Antiquities Act and establishing a national monument effectively blocks the designed or the designated lands from normal uses, under separate legislative um, pa- legislation rather passed in the 70s, Congress established the so-called multiple use and sustained yield mandate requiring the Bureau of Land Management to open the lands it manages to various uses, including energy development like drilling, grazing, recreation and mining. For far too long, the executive branch has abused the Antiquities Act to cut off millions of acres of public lands, an action that greatly impacts rural communities across the country and ignores Congress's directive on how those lands must be responsibly managed, Westerman said on Tuesday. Well, the president does not have the constitutional authority to lock away our federal land and waters, especially without any local input, he said. I urge the Supreme Court to take up these two critical cases and set the record straight on the executive branch's authority when it comes to regulating our federal lands and waters. We'll continue to um, follow that story. Well, the Democrats, who largely represent uh, states being targeted by Republicans as the biggest flip opportunities in the 2020 election, all touted their support for the Inflation Reduction Act 
and said it would lower health care costs for seniors, specifically when it came to prescription drugs. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case, however, as experts say the IRA, the again, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, is driving up Medicare Part D prescription drug premiums by as much as a whopping 57 percent in some states compared to 2023. Now, according to a study by HealthView Services, a leading provider of health care cost planning, the IRA is driving up Medicare Part D drug costs um, significantly in some states compared to 2023 based on the largest Medicare providers in Florida, California, Texas, New York, Pennsylvania. Significantly more expensive premiums will come as a shock to the millions of retirees and enrolled in Medicare Part D plans who may have been anticipating lower costs with the introduction of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the president of HealthView Services told Employee Benefit News in a November report. The report detailed how the IRA could actually be causing increases, including that it set a $2,000 cap on how much Medicare recipients spend out of pocket on drugs per year, which benefits those with the largest medical bills. But the money to cover the rest of those bills must come from somewhere, and insurers appear to be getting it from seniors themselves, the report said, adding that private insurance companies might now be passing costs on to consumers rather than absorbing them. Another report by the Kaiser Family Foundation said that although the Inflation Reduction Act included a premium stabilization provision that capped annual growth of Part D, again, Medicare, uh, base beneficiary premiums at 6% beginning in 2024, the base beneficiary premium is not the same as the amount that uh, Part D enrollees pay for coverage. And the law did not cap the growth in individual plan premiums to 6%. It said that the average prescription drug plan premium in 2024 would be 21% higher than in 2023. Longtime Democratic strategist James Carville is the subject of a forthcoming documentary, which he says will feature him speaking on behalf of the majority of voters who don't want Joe Biden running again in 2024. According to a report from The Ankler, the documentary is directed by Matthew Trinauer and depicts in part Carville's thus far quixotic fight within his own tent to persuade President Joe Biden to step aside as his party's candidate. Ankler writer Richard Rushfield who, like Carville, worked for President Clinton's 1992 campaign, described the film as showing the lion of Democratic politics as he embarks on one last crusade to stop Donald Trump from regaining office. Speaking with Fox News Digital on Friday, Carville confirmed the documentary and said he was a de facto representative of the 72 percent of the people who don't want that choice and will continue to express that option or that opinion. Democratic pollster Stanley Greenberg told CNN on Monday that President Biden is losing ground every month as the 2024 election gets closer and suggested the president's team stop touting progress. Greenberg joined CNN's Jim Acosta on Monday to talk about Biden's reelection chances. Acosta asked him about why people aren't feeling inflation cool down. What the president is currently doing in his uh, uh, tweets always start with we're making progress. And then he mentions prices. He said, noting the president was also trying to convince black voters they are doing a good job. They're losing ground every month and angry about it. He suggested Biden's team take a step back and figure out how to deal with the inflation problem. Acosta also asked him about The Washington Post's reporting on Biden and his reaction to recent poll numbers. After pardoning a pair of turkeys, an annual White House tradition, the president, he delivered some stern words from a small group assembled. His poll numbers were unacceptably low, and he wanted to know what his team and his campaign were doing about it. 
The Washington Post reported Acosta asked Greenberg what his team should be doing about the low poll numbers. What the president is currently doing is still talking about progress, and we can't keep talking about progress when the three-quarters of the country thinks we're on the wrong track, Greenberg responded. He said Biden needed to get where people are and tell voters we get it. An historically intense December coastal storm is blasting northeast on Monday after unleashing heavy rainfall, coastal flooding and high winds from Florida to the mid-Atlantic. More than 700,000 customers had no power midday Monday as gusts surpassed 60 miles an hour in many locations in eastern New England. Boston's Logan International Airport, where inbound flights were being delayed on average two hours and 14 minutes because of high winds, clocked a gust of 68 miles per hour. The same storm system uh, battered Florida and the Carolinas with strong winds and torrential rain over the weekend, with Charleston breaking a daily record Sunday with 3.86 inches of rainfall in Gainesville, Florida, recording more than seven inches. South Carolina also set a record for the greatest storm surge from a non-tropical system with a high tide of nearly 10 feet. In New York City, a travel advisory is in effect due to flooding conditions on roads, power outages and high winds on bridges. The city's emergency management office also warned of imminent flash flooding in Manhattan and the Bronx, warning locals to avoid basements and low-lying areas. The oil and gas heavyweight British Petroleum, or BP, has paused shipping through the Red Sea, the company said on Monday, as attacks from Yemen's Houthi rebels on commercial vessels in the area have intensified in the last few weeks. In light of the deteriorating security situation for shipping in the Red Sea, BP has decided to temporarily pause all transits through the Red Sea, the company said in a statement. Houthis, a pro-Palestinian rebel Yemeni group, which is backed by Iran, have increasingly targeted international ships going through the Red Sea since the start of the Israeli-Hamas war, raising fears that the conflict could escalate into a regional war. The news sent oil prices up across the world on Monday, with Brent crude jumping by 2.7 percent to $79 per barrel, and American oil rising by 2.7 percent up to 73.44 uh, per barrel. In European markets, natural gas contract futures spiked by about 8 percent. Well, the U.S. on Monday announced a new maritime task force that will defend commercial ships from aggression in the Red Sea in an effort to thwart the Houthi rebel group that said it will continue as long as the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues. It has attracted um, rather attacked uh, merchant vessels and forced companies to suspend routes through the region, as mentioned a moment ago. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Operation Prosperity Guardian will be a new security initiative involving several countries, the U.K., Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway and Spain. Since the Israel-Hamas war broke out on the 7th of October, the Iranian-backed Houthis have joined in with other militia groups across the Middle East in assaulting U.S. positions and assets. The Houthis have launched aggressive attacks on commercial ships as part of the fighting, including seizing a boat last month in a daring raid. The U.S. had not ruled out military action against Houthi targets if the attacks on ships continue, officials said. It would take appropriate action. Not clear what that would be at this point. At a time and place of our choosing, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said earlier this month. We are still going to hold those uh, accountable in Afghanistan at the time of our choosing. Uh, We've yet to see any response to the deaths of U.S. citizens there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. 
I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with the pastor of Eastridge Church. We'll talk about Emmanuel, God with us. Steve Jamison is the pastor of Eastridge. He's also the host of Eastridge Today, heard on KGNW. Well, the U.S. on Monday announced a new maritime task force that will defend commercial ships. And author, scholar Carol Swain has taken Harvard and President Gay to uh, to task in an op-ed. Carol Swain, the author and legal scholar whose work was allegedly plagiarized by Harvard President Claudine Gay, blasted Harvard University in an op-ed published on Sunday. Harvard has uh, stood by its president amid the scandal, saying it conducted an independent review of Gay's work, which revealed a few instances of inadequate citation. The Ivy League school added that her failure to cite the work she pulled from didn't violate the university's standards. Swain, who previously taught at Vanderbilt University and Princeton University, said the backlash to Gay's alleged plagiarism should be much more severe, but lamented that many of other of the um, other uh, uh, others Gay is accused of plagiarizing aren't as incensed as she is because they are elites who have benefited from a system that protects this uh, their own. Swain then slammed Harvard for standing by Gay as its uh, president since Gay's work provided no groundbreaking originality. Harvard can't condemn Miss Gay because she is the product of an elite system that holds minorities of high pedigree to a lower standard. This harms academia as a whole, and it demeans Americans of all races who had to work for everything they earned, she went on to say. Well, the Vatican said on Monday that Pope Francis had allowed priests to bless same-sex couples. His most definitive step yet to make the Roman Catholic Church more welcoming to LGBTQ Catholics and more reflective of his vision of a more pastoral and less rigid church. The new rule was issued in a declaration by the church's office on doctrine and introduced by its prefect, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, who said that the declaration did not amend the traditional doctrine of the church about marriage because it allowed no liturgical rite that could be confused with the sacrament of marriage. It is precisely in this context, the cardinal wrote, that one can understand the possibility of a ble- of blessing couples in irregular situations and same-sex couples without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's uh, perennial teaching on marriage. Now, I'm not sure how you work that Jenga puzzle, but apparently he sees a way. Others, not so much. New York City Mayor Adams said that uh, we underestimated the impact of the migrant and asylum seeker issue. He continues to battle against his own uh, president. In an interview on Sunday, the New York City mayor said that he thinks Democrats have underestimated the impact of the illegal immigration crisis. He told CBS, we Democrats underestimated that impact and asylum seekers uh, that impacted major cities in the country. He added that there is a visual impact that can be seen in the city as thousands of illegal immigrants use scooters to illegally work delivery jobs. It's created this underground market that is really dangerous to the infrastructure of our city. And the scooters you see is a reflection of that, he said. In another interview Sunday, he noted that going forward, the Big Apple will experience extremely painful cuts to the city's budget in order to handle the influx, influx rather of illegal immigrants. Nippon Steel Company, the largest steelmaker in Japan, is acquiring the United States Steel Corporation for almost $15 billion. Nippon Steel Corporation, or NCS, is acquiring U.S. Steel in an all-cash transaction of $55 per share for a total enterprise of about $14.9 billion. 
The transaction was unanimously approved by the board of directors at both U.S. Steel and NSC and is expected to close in the second or third quarter of 2024 calendar year. The companies say the acquisition will further diversify NSC's global footprint by significantly expanding its current uh, production in the U.S. and the company's total annual crude uh, steel capacity is expected to reach 86 million tons. All of U.S. Steel's commitments with its employees, including all collective bargaining agreements in place with its union, will be honored, Nippon said. Despite these assurances, the United States uh, United Steelworkers Union, which had endorsed heavily unionized cliffs as the acquirer, said it was opposed to the sale of the uh, to Nippon uh, because it did not have faith in labor agreements being upheld. Our union intends to exercise the full measure of our agreements to ensure that whatever happens next at U.S. Steel, we protect the good family-sustaining jobs we bargained, United Steelworkers said. Jimmy Lai, a media tycoon and champ, uh, champion of free speech and democracy, went on trial in Hong Kong on Monday. He's been charged with several crimes, including colluding with foreign forces, But supporters around the world say his real offense has been criticizing China's ruling Communist Party and its crackdown on freedom in Hong Kong. Convicted of the charges, he could face life in prison. Back in August uh, 2020, shortly after China had pushed through a new security law in Hong Kong, 200 police officers were sent to the offices of Apple Daily, a pro-democracy newspaper run by Jimmy Lai. Uh, Lai himself was arrested at home but was uh, brought into the office and paraded around in handcuffs. The police also arrested other high-ranking staff at the newspaper and seized papers, laptops. Uh, That same day, China froze his accounts in an attempt to shutter Apple Daily. Because readers pushed to keep the paper going, it survived for a while until China finally froze its corporate bank accounts, shuttering Daily, the only outspoken pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong. The excuse for all of this was that Lai and others had colluded with foreign agents to attempt to undermine China's control. Ever since then, China has been prosecuting people involved, trying to write its version of what happened into the history books. A man was arrested in an anti-Semitic attack outside the D.C. synagogue on Sunday. Officers arrested Brent Wood for allegedly shouting on an anti-Semitic phrase and spraying a foul-smelling substance on two people outside the um, Israeli congregation. The victims were not physically hurt. Police are investigating the incident as a hate and biased motivated crime. The Anti-Defamation League condemned the incident, issuing a statement that reads in part, there is simply no excuse for these anti-Semitic acts. None of this is normal and no one should think it that it is okay." A man has been arrested in Washington, D.C. today after blocking the entrances to a synagogue, then spraying those who exited with some kind of substance while screaming gas the Jews. Tennessee's Attorney General Jonathan uh, Scrametti, he slapped back BlackRock, the world's largest asset management firm, with a first-of-its-kind lawsuit on Monday, alleging the company misled customers about the financial consequences caused by its embrace of woke ESG, environmental, social, and governance policies. The state of Tennessee is suing BlackRock in a first-of-its-kind lawsuit alleging that they violated consumer protection laws by misleading investors about their money being used to fund ESG. National Review weighed in, saying that BlackRock is a member of ESG Coalition's Net Zero Asset Managers, Initiative and Climate Action 100+, Plus, 
Participation in these groups compels BlackRock to make various pledges to combat climate change that affect its client assets and achieve specific emissions reduction targets, the complaint said. These promises include lobbying, engagement, voting on shareholder proposals and managing assets with the goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050, according to the complaint. The complaint claimed BlackRock has made climate and natural capital a top shareholder engagement factor while maintaining it uh, in other messaging that um, return on investment, not environmental concerns, is its main priority, deceiving its investors. Homelessness has hit a record high of 650,000 people, the highest number of people reported as experiencing homelessness on a single night since the Department of Housing and Human Development began tracking the data back in 2007. HUD reports that across the country, homelessness has risen 12 percent, with Asian Americans seeking the biggest increase, up 40 percent since last year. When it comes to states, California leads that list with the highest percentage of unsheltered homeless at 68 percent, followed by Oregon, Oregon at 64.6 percent. This is Bidenomics at work. Is uh, it any wonder um, that uh, there's an effort to distance itself from the phrase and perhaps the outcome? The COVID era freeze on student loan repayments ended in September. However, according to the Department of Education, just 60 percent or roughly 13 million borrowers have made their first monthly payment. A whopping 40 percent have failed to begin repaying what they owe. The reason the underpayment rate is so high is thanks to Joe Biden's efforts to push his loan cancellation gabbit. Uh, failure to repay now will not get uh, one counted as delinquent until next September. Why September? Well, that's a perfect time for a last minute get out the vote campaign issued by the president just two months before the 2024 presidential election. Well, coming up, we have a conversation with uh, Pastor Steve Jamison. We'll talk about what it means, Emmanuel, God with us. But before that, we've got news coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, among the most reassuring promises of Scripture are the I am with you promises. They start in Genesis, where God says to Isaac, fear not, for I am with you. That's the 26th chapter of Genesis, verse 24. And they occur again and again, and they reach a glorious climax in Matthew 1, 23. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Well, once again, at the close of Matthew, as the risen Lord, he prepares to return to heaven. He leaves his disciples with the promise, lo, I am with you always. Well, having so great a gift places all lesser gifts in proper perspective. To help us reflect on what Scripture has to say about Emmanuel, God with us, I'm so delighted to introduce Pastor Steve Jamison. He is lead pastor at Eastridge Church in Issaquah, a multi-site church with two campuses in the Seattle area and one in Adi Ababa, Ethiopia. He's the host of Eastridge Today that airs Saturdays at 820, or rather on 820, The Word in Seattle. He has served for 14 years as a full-time evangelist, traveling to 37 nations on six continents. He's a member of the International Media Ministries Board, Madrid, Spain, and Convoy of Hope National Pastors Committee. Uh, he is the co-founder of Jammin' Against the Darkness, an evangelistic outreach featuring NBA-style hoops, award-winning music, and the message of Jesus Christ. He and his wife, Cheryl have three adult children. They make their home in Sammamish, uh, Sammamish, Washington, and we are delighted to have him with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Pastor. 
Oh, it's my privilege, Georgine. Thank you for having me today. You know, it's so easy during this holiday season. I say holiday because there are a number of things that go on with Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year that it's easy to miss the the, the main message of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And I just wanted to invite you to to share with us a little bit of what it really means that God is with us. This ancient promise fulfilled at the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem at his birth. You know, I, I think that one of the most important things that we can talk about in the coming of, of uh, Jesus, you know, we're in what we call the Advent season where we unpack so many of the different dynamics of who Jesus is and why he came and, and really what the story is about. I, I love what Paul says in Second Corinthians 9.15 where he, he says, Praise be to God for his indescribable gift. And what he's talking about there, obviously, is the coming of Jesus. And it really is God's miraculous, indescribable. How do we put it into words that God loves us so much that this great creator God who fashioned us, formed us, gave us life, and even gave us the special ability to know him and to have a real relationship with him. How amazing is it that that God would step out of his glory and actually humble himself mm. to being born into humanity. You know, in a simpler time, in a in a very humble place, the king of, of all glory, you know, came into our our lives and into humanity. And the purpose of it, I think, is what is so important. Yes. You know, the, pro- the prophet Isaiah uh, talked about the, the Messiah that would, would ultimately come. And he said in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a familiar passage the Lord himself will give a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And like you're talking about, you know, that amazing miracle starts unfolding uh, in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew's talking about kind of the crisis of faith that's in this moment, where, where Mary's been encountered by the angel Gabriel. Joseph is in a crisis because he misinterprets what's happening as any man would and thinks that there's betrayal in this picture. But the angel comes to him in a dream and says, no, don't be afraid because, you know, what's happening here is of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah. And, uh, and then even tells Joseph he's got a big task. He says, you're going to be the one that gives him the name Jesus. And then that's where the text comes back in and says, and he will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. So as humans, this is this indescribable gift. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our hearts and our heads around the fact, first of all, that God could come and, and be fully God, fully man. But that's what, this, that's what this amazing miracle is talking to us about. The second thing is that, is that this amazing God would come for our benefit. You know, this indescribable gift, the gift of, of Christ's presence, him going ultimately to a cross and doing what only he could do. He laid his life down, and and through the sacrifice of of his own blood and and that that brutality that he faced upon the cross, he literally took everything that stands between us and God, and and he by faith we can receive forgiveness, and Christ can bridge us from a holy God that is all light, pure and holy, to where we are in our hurts, pains, and and difficulty. And a lot of times we get to feeling like we've messed up so much that, that God really couldn't do much with us, that we're kind of beyond reach. But this whole amazing story brings us back to this place 
of God's love reaching out to us and saying, I'm not God way out there somewhere. I'm not the God that doesn't speak or doesn't communicate, but I am, I am the Lord Jesus. I am Emmanuel. I'm God right here with you in your life. And this story beautifully stretches from 2000 years ago, right to where you and I are right here, right now, uh, in the great needs of our lives, there's a savior, a redeemer, and the Lord who's right here in the midst of us. You know, being reminded of the the central feature of this Christmas season, I think causes all of us to stand for a moment just in mute silence to consider that a holy God made a way for us to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's never a truer moment in our life when we recognize, you know, there's nothing I can bring to God. I am unworthy of the kind of offering that he makes through his son. I think perhaps for the first time we see clearly that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but that Jesus Christ himself has provided everything God requires in order for us to have a relationship with him. And how can we do anything other than worship when we consider this great gift that's been given to us uh, when we have not earned it? We didn't deserve it, but God in his great grace and mercy uh, saw past our sin that separated us from him and provided a way for us to be in relationship. It's it's such an amazing story, and I fear that most most of the world just doesn't hear it. They don't get it. Absolutely, you know, because just like we were talking a moment ago about you know Paul's words about being an indescribable gift, and it it really means it's beyond description, it's beyond explanation. And you look at every part of this story, and it really fits that, doesn't it? Because you look at, at Christ coming as, as God into humanity, but then you look at the human part of Mary being told that she's going to carry the Christ. And boy, how do you go and explain that to anybody? Mm. You know, and, then, and then Joseph's side of it, as we're describing just that faith crisis, thinking that there'd been betrayal and brokenness here, when in fact it was the opposite. It was reconciliation by the love of God coming into mankind. And, and so it really is you know, way beyond what we can imagine. But for everyone listening today, this is where this amazing gift comes down so personally and and with such reality and such power. I I think about the book of Colossians where it talks so much about Jesus as how, you know, by him the world was made. By him all things are held together. And I often think about how when we think our world is spiraling out of control, it's probably because we're not close enough to the one that holds it all together. And in Colossians 1.19, the scripture talks about how the Father, God was pleased to have the, all of his fullness dwell. And it's talking about in Jesus. And, and it talks about, and through his sacrifice, the Lord would present to himself that we were holy, that we're blameless. And then it even says that we're without accusation. And so here is this miracle of God, the great, like you're talking about, the greatest gifts that we could ever be a part of is this God, Emmanuel, right here with us, so dear, so close, but he's reaching out to us with his own sacrifice, that if we would just believe, if we would just accept what he, what he has uh, made available to us, then God does another miracle, and that is that he applies that sacrifice of Jesus upon our lives. And when he looks at us, it's not based on how other people look at us, because they'll, they'll look at us and they'll think we're still the person they used to know. But when God looks at us, it says he sees us holy. Mm. He sees us blameless. 
And I love this other part because so many people live with the fear of a secret or the fear of a failure. But the Lord says, free of accusation. Man, the greatest gift of all is to, to know this Jesus, Emmanuel, with us right here, right now. Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Pastor Steve Jameson, lead pastor of Eastridge Church in Issaquah. He also is the host of Eastridge Today, heard on KGNW. We're talking about God, Emmanuel, with us. What a tremendous gift he has given. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Steve Jamison, pastor of Eastridge Church in Issaquah. He's also host of Eastridge Today, heard on KGNW. We're talking about Emmanuel, God with us, this tremendous gift that we have been given that can so easily be overlooked during this season of great activity and, and distraction. Just before the break, you were talking about the fact that the accuser of the brethren really has nothing to say, although he speaks quite often and into our, our, our hearts, Lord, that, that he has nothing to say because God himself says that we are no longer being accused, uh, that we stand blameless. And this is, uh, is beyond um, words that I think could explain what a, a profound gift that is. During this season, with all the distractions that we face, how can we keep the main thing the main thing? How can we keep Christ the focus of our activity and the, the, uh, the things that occupy our thinking? You know, it's something I was just talking in our staff chapel with our team today, that that very challenge for us, even even, um, you know, people in ministry, uh, people who are preparing worship and preparing, you know, uh, to speak and to open the doors for one of the greatest weeks out of the year for people between Christmas and Christmas Eve. And there's this place where each and every one of us have to create the space in our heart and not allow this moment to pass us by and to just, you know, be caught up in the busyness, uh, the parties, the fun, the different things like that, but to miss the reality of what this message is all about. And, and not only that, but I'll tell you, there's a hunger right now. I mean, obviously our culture is going through such upheaval and fears and anxieties at every turn and conflicts and, and all of that. But what we're seeing, and I know so many other people are the very same thing, there is an underlying hunger. The response has been tremendous this Christmas season, the people responding to God. And I think that this is what we need to do to keep focus is we, we've got to really see this whole theme we're talking about, Jesus, Emmanuel, God right here with us. And, and this God, I think coming back to that scripture in Colossians, it's so powerful is that a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus is a good man or he's a good teacher uh, we probably ought to listen to some of the things he says, but, but it doesn't really matter. He's, he's not really God. But Colossians 1.19 says that, that the Father was pleased to have all of his fullness in him. So when we look at Jesus, we look at the birth. It's not just a baby born in a manger. It is, it is the deep theological truths that God had, you know, Jesus came as fully God. And in this indescribable way, came on and, and took man, took humanity at the same time. So something that is beyond how we can, you know, easily describe it because it's different than us. Here is this incredible miracle of Christmas that the thing only Jesus could cleanse us of our sin. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. 
And, and what is so significant and what people so often miss, even when they look at the cross, they just see it sometimes through the lens of brutality. And they wonder, why would God allow himself to go through that? And, and we, miss, we miss the part that the only person Jesus had to satisfy when he went to the cross was God's own holiness, mm-hmm. God's own heart, God's own conscience. And that's why only Jesus could do that. He's the only one that had the authority to go to the cross and and meet what God would see as maybe a, a way to describe it is like the currency that would really truly be the price of man's forgiveness. And it was God taking and shouldering it himself. And that I think if we can draw and connect all these dots, it, it brings us to this place of really understanding why we should pray why we should invite people, and why we should really be involved, especially in these, in these last few days as we close out this year, as there's a lot of hungry hearts that I believe God will touch if we will lead them to the full picture of Jesus, the Son of God, who was born into humanity, that we could know His glory. You know, I think you're right. We, um, we know that the troubles that are surrounding us from close up and from afar— and people are very concerned about what the future might hold. And I, I think this uh, traditionally is a season in which people are more open to spiritual things. And if we will seize the opportunity out of our own gratitude and love for others, gratitude to God and love for those who don't yet know him, we could see a tremendous harvest. But I think we tend to be reluctant. We imagine, well, people don't really want to hear or we're not sure how we'll be received. What do you say to those who are a bit timid about bringing up the, the true meaning of Christmas and how Christ has impacted our lives in these uh, occasions when we get together with family members and friends? Uh, we're in public settings. Um, how important is it for us to share our testimony and to talk about what Christ has done for us in this season? I think that's key. I think that's the absolute key is for people to, um, yeah, there's a lot of fear about going out and, you know, feeling like, you know, you're, you're impressing something upon someone who might not be interested or you're going to be offensive to them. And, you know, in, in the midst of our cancel culture and, and people's short fuses, there, there's, a, there's reason to be concerned. But the reality is, is that the truth is that in the midst of all this, there is greater opportunity, like you're mentioning. There is dissatisfaction in the heart. There's people fatigued and worn out. Uh, they're, just, they're just tired of, of, of where they're at, and they're uncertain how to get out of there. And the, the real key, I believe, is for us to pray ahead of time and then be led by the Holy Spirit in the conversations. Uh, we don't have to cram yeah. anything down anybody's throat. We don't have to break any door down. We just need to pray ahead of time and ask God to give us open doors. And one of the most effective things we could ever do is just talk about uh, our own experience and, and, and how, you know, hey, this season is really great. I know it's busy, but I always just am so thankful for this moment because it just reminds me of what God can do in our lives. And you know, just gently come into the picture and give space for people to even be comfortable to listen and and let the Holy Spirit lead that conversation. I've been hearing a lot of stories about just God, you know, divine appointments people are receiving. They're stepping into the moment with, with just a, a strong faith, but a gentle spirit in the midst of it. And, and I'll tell you, it, it's amazing. People need the Lord and God is 
hungry to touch their lives. So there's, there's an amazing opportunity and it's just awaiting for us to step into it. And again, don't, don't uh, feel like you have to, you know, knock a door down, but, but be bold enough to pray ahead of time. And then when the door starts open in front of you, take that opportunity and God will lead you. And again, your own personal experience of just, you know, not making it, you know, Christian cliche or hyper spiritual and miss the reality. It just comes down to God loving us and that God is a, a communicative God. He's told us that that he wants to be at the center of our life right here, God with us. And I so appreciate your uh, reminding us that it's the Holy Spirit's work. And we pray, we make ourselves available. He'll guide us in what to say, what not to say, when, and all of the other details that tend to leave us a bit reluctant. Now, for folks who live in the Seattle area and are looking for a place to worship um, on Christmas Eve or during the the weekend, what do you have going on at Eastridge? Well, we're going to have two morning services at our Issaquah campus, and that's our largest campus. And that will be at 9 and 11 in the morning. And then um, early afternoon at 4 o'clock, uh, uh, we will have one-hour services of Christmas Eve. And th- those will be special candlelight communion services. Uh, people love these services, and um, I, I love being a part of it. We'll, we'll have great uh, music and opportunity to hear a short gospel, uh, but just that great experience of being together. So we will do an hour-long service. One will start at 4. We have one at 5.30. We have one at 7. And um, and then another one a little later. A lot of people come at 11 o'clock at night. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. And then we also have our campus in West Seattle. It's a smaller campus, but it's on 39th in Oregon. And there'll be our 10 a.m. service in the morning. And then um, we will also have um, 6 p.m., for um, our service over there for uh, Christmas Eve. Well, Pastor Steve, I thank you for serving in the church, for giving opportunity for folks in the community to come together to worship the Lord Jesus as we commemorate his birth and and contemplate all of the things that followed. Uh, and we anticipate his return because Jesus is coming again. And we look forward uh, to that where we will be with him forever. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us here today. Oh, it's my privilege. Thank you for the invitation. And Merry Christmas to you and all of the listeners. Merry Christmas to you as well. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless. Again, Pastor Steve Jameson, lead pastor at Eastridge Church in Issaquah and host of Eastridge Today on KGNW, our subject, Emmanuel, with us. For those of you in the Seattle area, have a great night. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. We'll hear from Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro, here in Oregon. Have a great night and We'll be back tomorrow. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back for the Portland-only segments of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, when I say that, if you've just joined us, it may sound a bit odd. But for the first hour and a half, we are joined by KGNW in Seattle. So we uh, have the opportunity to share the program with them until 530. And then from then on, that last half, half hour It's just Portland. On Fridays, however, they're only with us for the first hour. And then for the second hour, we go to the Christian Outlook and they go to additional um, program or alternative programming. So that's why I say that it's just us. 
Well, returning to some of the headline news, a win in Wisconsin against DEI indoctrination. Republicans there in that purple state have registered a big win against promulgation of the neo-Marxist ideology that runs under the woke acronym DEI, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Wisconsin Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss insightfully dubs it division, exclusion and indoctrination. Republicans who control the state legislature demonstrated how to use their position as holders of the power of the purse to get Wisconsin Democrat Governor Tony Evers to agree to sign legislation that not only prevents the funding of DEI programs within the state's university system, but also abolishes an affirmative action faculty hiring program. Republicans accomplished this feat by trying the legislation to pay increases for all other state employees. Naturally, university officials originally balked but Republicans held strong and eventually administrators and Evers capitulated in order to secure funding. Former CIA agent and adjunct Georgetown professor John Gentry warns the politicization of the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, created a problem that threatens American security to this day. In his new book, Neutering the CIA, Why U.S. Intelligence versus Trump has long term consequences. He also writes A new, dramatically stronger and damaging form of politicization, partisan political activism willing to damage or destroy uh, politically a sitting American president, has taken roots in part of U.S. intelligence community. It dwarfs the politicization episodes of the past in magnitude and importance, and it promises to have lasting negative consequences, end quote. Well, here we're reminded of Democrat Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's chilling warning to then-President-elect Donald Trump in January of 2018 after Trump had publicly criticized our nation's intel efforts. Let me tell you, you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. That's a direct quote. It appears Schumer was right. The question for Trump and all other Republicans, all other politicians for that matter, what are we prepared to do about it? It is an open question. Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill making it a state crime to enter Texas illegally. And more bad news for Bud Light. Anheuser-Busch is facing a workers' strike. And Ayanna Presley introduced the Books Save Lives Act to require diverse libraries. Now, diverse might sound innocuous, but what fits into that category may be surprising. Well, on this day in history, 1777, during the American Revolutionary War, General George Washington leads his army of about 11,000 men to Valley Forge to camp for the winter. 1907, a coal mine explosion in Jacobs Creek, Pennsylvania, kills 239 workers. 1946, war breaks out in Indochina as troops under Ho Chi Minh, they launch widespread attacks against the French. 1950, General Dwight D. Eisenhower is named commander of the military forces of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. 1957, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man opens on Broadway. 1972, Apollo 17 splashes down in the Pacific Ocean, bringing the Apollo program of manned lunar landing to an end. 1975, John Paul Stevens is sworn in as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. 1998, President Bill Clinton is impeached by the Republican-controlled House for perjury and obstruction of justice. He would be acquitted by the Senate. 2002, Secretary of State Colin Powell declares Iraq a material breach, immaterial breach of a U.N. disarmament resolution. 2008, citing imminent danger to the national economy, President George W. Bush orders an emergency bailout of the U.S. auto industry. 
2013, discount retailer Target announces that data connected to about 40 million credit and debit card accounts were stolen as part of a breach that began over the Thanksgiving weekend. And 2017, on this day in history, U.S. health officials approved the nation's first gene therapy for an inherited disease, a treatment that improves the sight of patients with a rare form of blindness. Well, we learned this week that the Pamplin Media Group uh, told about two dozen employees at its Gresham printing plant last week that they would lose their jobs in early January when the press shuts down. Pamplin Media will shift production of its newspapers to the Columbians plant in Vancouver, Washington. The Gresham closure is just the latest sign of financial troubles for the companies that are part of the R.B. Pamplin Corporation run by Robert B. Pamplin Jr. As uh, the Willamette Week has reported, Pamplin has engaged in the highly unusual and experts say probably illegal practice of selling real estate from Pamplin operating companies to the company's pension fund, Uh, One of the more than 70 such properties, the soon-to-be dormant printing press at 1190 Northeast Division in Gresham, records show that Pamplin, who is both CEO and uh, of R.B. Pamplin Corporation and the trustee of its pension fund, sold that property to the pension fund in 2019 for $1.55 million. That allowed him to extract cash from the pension fund while saddling pensioners with an aging asset in a dying business, which is exactly what pension experts say should never happen. Now, whether or not this is an accurate assessment, this is uh, Nigel uh, Jacquis from Willamette Week reporting. Records also show that property taxes on the printing plant are three years in arrears for a total of $62,000. Pamphlet officials didn't respond to a request for comment. Willamette Week also reported earlier this month that the Pamplin Media Group is shopping its two dozen publications, most of which are clustered in the Tri-County area. We'll continue to follow uh, that story and draw down over the days ahead. Well, there's a new documentary in the works by atheist and leftist filmmaker Rob Reiner entitled God and Country. The film ostensibly seeks to explore the existential threat of so-called Christian nationalism in America, Thus far, there's only been a trailer, but it's troubling enough. First of all, how does Reiner define Christian nationalism? Well, from the trailer, it seems that the definition is a range from militant J6 rioters to regular everyday Christians whose political decisions are informed by their faith. You're a Christian nationalist by his definition. Granted, there are extremes to Christian nationalism defined first by its nationalistic fervor that then justifies extreme positions with Christianity. Hardcore Christian nationalists stake out positions like Trump is a prophet or Trump sits on the right hand of God, i.e., he's practically the second coming of Christ, and just to set things straight, he is not. Or America is the next Israel has replaced Israel. That's another version. Well, this particular group numbers extremely small and isn't a particularly powerful presence in the grander political landscape or in the body of Christ, for that matter. But if Reiner is lumping in Christians who use the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to influence their political decisions, that is a bad faith attack. Uh, we might even call it Christophobia. Well, Christophobia is a blatant attempt by the left to demonize Christians who use their faith as moral guidance when they discuss and decide on political ideas or other ideas for that matter. It also it's also worth pointing out that our founding fathers built the ideas and framework for this country based on Judeo-Christian morality. Attacking Christians for being guided by their faith in political matters is in a very real sense an attack against America and by extension the West. 
The left, particularly its radical flank, doesn't really like America and its values and has been seeking to undermine it at every turn, especially on the cultural issues. And if Reiner is pointing out the one fringe group covering itself with Christianity to justify extreme nationalism, how about the other extremes of Christian uh, statism, wherein leftists have co-opted Christianity and the secular humanism of this age? That religious um, syncretism is a veneer of religious piety to cover the political and alternative morality. Christian statists have much more political power and sway, by the way. It's also troubling to see well-known Christians, David French, Phil Vischer of VeggieTales fame, and others put their names and reputations to this project, particularly when it's likely espousing values that are not from a Christian worldview. Did these Christians understand what they were doing when they agreed to take part in this documentary? Not the B writer Peter Heck points out that perhaps these Christians were unaware of what perspectives they were undergirding. Prominent Christians, com- Christian commentators like um, Sky Jitani and Phil Vischer of the Holy Post podcast, David French of the New York Times, Russell Moore, and a handful of other professing Christians all agreed to sit for interviews and participate in making of the film. Facing backlash, both Vischer and author Kristen Demuse or uh, Dumez. Um, have claimed they didn't know an atheist radical was the one masterminding the project, though evidence has now surfaced that Reiner was attached to the making and financing prior to their involvement. I'm willing to believe their claim of innocent ignorance. Well, the last question that should be considered is this. What is Reiner's intended takeaway for audiences? We'll tell you that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, we were talking about a uh, an atheist anti-Christian nationalism documentary that Rob Reiner has put together, and he's included some folks who are, well, mainstream Christians. Well, the last question that should be considered in all of this is, what is Reiner's intended takeaway for audiences? Is it to intimidate Christians and further push them to the edges of society? Or is it to force them into the heretical perspective of religious syncretism in order to more uh, be more liked by the left or the mainstream or however he would characterize himself? When considering that Reiner is both an atheist and a left-wing activist, the latter is more likely. In a recent episode of Ali Beth Stuckey's a relatable podcast, she interviewed John Cooper from the band Skillet. Cooper had this insight. The movement to destroy America, destroy Western civilization at its roots against Christianity. And what I think that some people don't understand is they're not against us because we believe that Jesus is God. They don't really care if you believe that Jesus is God. He goes on to paraphrase German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who was virtually against Christianity. Nietzsche, he instructed his acolytes to attack Christianity at its moral base. He understood that if morality itself can be undermined, then men are free. Hello, moral relativism and all its poisonous fruits. This heightening attack against Christianity by those on the left should surprise no one, but should have many more vigilant about what they associate with and uh, what's on the horizon. Well, the rise in fake news photos generated by AI is eroding public trust in online information. A charity is warning thousands of Internet users are being duped into sharing bogus images from Prince William and Harry embracing at the coronation to fake mugshots of Donald Trump. 
Full fact and the influx of phony images often come in response to the increased demand for up-to-date information during major international events. People want more information, so we just create it. Researchers at the uh, fact-checking charity said that the intention was likely not to convince people the images were real, but to reduce trust in information generally. Chief Executive Chris Morris warned the growing problem posted a huge threat to democracy, particularly with the general election looming. News Industries uh, representatives last uh, last week highlighted the importance of traditional media outlets in debunking the rise in misinformation and providing a trustworthy alternative. Be wary of what you see, what you hear, what you read, and its veracity. Is it true? Is it generated? We have to be a bit more discerning. And Jonathan Haidt is on a mission to understand what has gone wrong with our school-aged children. As a noted psychology professor at New York University's Stern School of Business, he noticed a change in students both socially and academically starting in 2012. Students are lonelier, not as intellectually engaged, and are developing mental health problems at an alarming rate. What happened in 2012? Well, that was when smartphones really took off in the mainstream and flip phones went the way of the rotary dial. Also, that was when Instagram started to garner popularity among young women, especially giving birth to the selfie culture and all the toxicity that comes with the curated social media life. He started researching and studying this phenomenon in an attempt to help these poor kids who were and are really suffering. Well, frankly, his concern is one that many who are teachers share. Um, Emily Griffin writes that my own experience with a modern student and smart devices has had some more negative uh, connotations than good. Some firsthand experiences, children as young as fourth grade watching porn during school hours, first graders with smartwatches calling their parents when they got in trouble at school, middle school girls changing drastically from happy, well-adjusted kids to making all the wrong life choices because TikTok and Instagram told them it was cool. And high schoolers being mute during lunch, mindlessly scrolling instead of hanging out with their friends. Most schools do little to nothing to regulate students' smartphone use, even after the obvious downsides and limited upsides. Smartphones, the Internet, and specifically social media are not good for the the, uh, prefrontal cortex. Just as a reminder, the prefrontal uh, cortex, which is concerned with decision-making and long-term planning and consequences, isn't fully developed in humans until the age of 25. These kids simply do not have a developed enough brain to resist the temptation and constant distraction these cell phones supply and quickly get addicted to the dopamine hits that uh, their brains have. Um, They've been trained to crave. Well, as the psychologist's conversations with schools, uh, the consensus was that smartphones were the bane of students learning and teachers being able to be effective in communicating their lessons. Incorporating technology into lessons seemed to be a good solution, along with teaching students how to academically use the smart devices. However, any use of smartphones in this capacity isn't really a good solution either, since even having the device out is too um, great a temptation for kids to get distracted. Well, this academic decline has um, Mr. Haight and others noticed uh, um, an international phenomenon in the U.S. based on the national report cards Uh, Their long-term assessment scores, 2012 marked the highest scores in reading and math. Since then, those scores have drastically sunk. There are many factors um, that have gone into the steep decline, but smartphones are certainly part of it. Mr. Haight, he proposes that schools 
outright ban smartphones from school property. Well, this would be an excellent solution to at least give these kids a six to eight hour detox from their phones. Some parents would have a very hard time with this. Many parents want to be able to reach their kids at any moment of the school day. In this day and age, it's hard to blame them. However, parents not able or willing to police their children's device use or prevent them from having access to social media is also a huge part of the problem. Even then, that situation probably has more to do with parents being naive about the significant increase in online dangers. And also, technology is changing faster than many parents can keep up with. Dr. Haidt says many ideas to help uh, guide both parents and government bodies in regulating the use of smartphones and social media for kids. First, he suggests that parents not um, given their kids a phone until they're 14 and uh, not let them have access to social media until they're 16. I know for some of you that seems impossible. Considering how predators are able to circumvent the protections that social media has put in place, 16 still seems pretty young. Well, smartphones and social media are probably just the tip of the iceberg of what's ailing our students. It would be interesting and very likely good for them to have an opportunity to unplug from their smartphones, as Dr. Haight suggests. It's giving them the gift of social interaction, a change to enjoy learning without distractions and a chance to be kids, something that has been lost. Well, I wanted to close today with the content of a letter that was sent by the host of Abide in the Word radio program heard here on KPDQ, Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It was a letter sent to uh, to donors that I think helps to put into perspective the weighty matters we discuss here on a regular basis in the context of our Christian faith and as we anticipate the celebration of uh, the birth of the Savior and leading up to the events following that led to the possibility of salvation. He writes, At the birth of our Savior, the angels proclaimed, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace, goodwill toward men. Christmas cards and Christmas carols speak of peace and goodwill. But our world is far from peaceful and goodwill is certainly in short supply. Terrorism, war, threats of war and uh, lawlessness characterize our world. Our nation seems more divided than ever. Once again, Israel is fighting for its very existence as a nation. Before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples the future would be characterized by wars and rumors of wars. He said nation would rise against nation and there would be famines and earthquakes. He spoke of great lawlessness and persecution and said all these things were like the beginning of birth pains. They would intensify leading up to the end of the age. Of course, we don't know precisely when the end of the age will be, but one thing we know for sure God would begin human history in the Garden of Eden in a, a, char, a change of human history, and he will bring human history to a close. God's purposes are not threatened or thwarted by evil empires, tyrannical men, terrorists, or mobs. Rather, God works through the affairs of men to accomplish his purpose, which is the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus, his son. In the meantime, we know what we are to be doing. Scripture tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that Israel and the people everywhere will repent and call out to God for salvation. We know that real peace will only come as we worship the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. We are to be sharing the message of God's perfect plan of salvation to people everywhere while they are still, where there is still time. When you pray for, uh, for them, when you pray for ministries that preach the word, give generously to the resources. Uh, These are days of real opportunity for the gospel, he concludes. And I think it's a good word for all of us as we consider the days that we are in, as we anticipate celebrating the birth of our Savior and the possibility of salvation through his death, through his resurrection, and his seating on the right hand 
of the Father, where he makes intercession for us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow on the program, a conversation with Pastor Rich Jones from Calvary Chapel, Hillsboro. So I hope you'll join us. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.